0: Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s.
1: It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past,
2: but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then, who we are now. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives
3: very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding.
0: Hopefully it's still really rewarding, right, (laughs) guys? As we continue this journey. Hopefully we
3: get to the real scoop. (laughs) scoop.
0: (laughs) You should put put that on a t-shirt, Diana. Real scoop, I think. (laughs) Or open an ice cream chain or something. This is uh, Producer Dave from Pod617.com, but more importantly, I want to introduce to you the cast and crew of The Link Podcast, Farrah Pandith. I'm just
2: very excited.
0: (laughs) Meredith Zinner is very excited, and Diana Donovan. Is everybody Also excited. Also excited, yes. Just in not quite the Meredith way, but then again, who is ever? Well, once again, we have a classmate of the class of 1986 at Milton Academy, of which all four of us share that distinction. Make it five now with the guest that Meredith will introduce, I'm sure, which with much panache.
2: Oh, my gosh. First of all, I don't even know where to start. So this gentleman has done so much stuff. And in a di- I'm just going to start by the fact he lives in Paris. Okay, lives in Paris, married to an Italian, so already three languages. But in addition to that, he has worked for, he started working for an Italian social policy research foundation, either Census or Census where he led the work on immigration related issues and then including like trafficking, seasonal work, unaccompanied minors, lots of good stuff like that. And then he even chaired working a group at the National Economic and Labor Council on implementing part of the 1998 immigration law. And he, he's now I can't even begin. He's just incredible. Jonathan Shaloff. Hello! Jonathan,
4: Thank I have- you for that wonderful introduction. I,
2: didn't Jonathan, she didn't get to the part where she's
1: telling us what you do now so i yes. think we should hear what you're doing in paris
4: i have some paris
0: music to set the stage of. <laughs> rom-
2: oh,
4: romantic french music okay. Please. <laughs> that
2: is so so
4: Let's say the romantic side, there is a little bit of that, but most of, mostly I'm here for professional reasons. Yeah, so I came here from Italy about 12, 13 years, 13 years ago and to work at the OECD, which is an organization for, international, uh, for economic cooperation and development, which is an intergovernmental organization, which is based here in Paris, but which involves many countries, including the U.S. And yes.
2: No, please. I was going to just say, what is that? I'm I'm a ding dong.
4: So in fact, that's I live in Iraq.
2: I'm, not in under in.
4: No, no, it's the sort of thing. It's one of those things that you can't explain to anyone really very easily. And your mother says, "I think he works somewhere. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's, it's like something. the United Nations I think sort that's of. What but I it's say. like the United Nations, but it's not.
3: <laughs> but it has to do with the economy.
4: But it's very international. So." So he's very smart. (laughs) So the OECD is, it's essentially, it's a group, it's sometimes called the Club of Rich Countries, although not all the countries are rich. Sometimes it's called the Club of Rich Democracies and not all the countries are always democracies. But essentially it's a group of developed countries, 38 now, that uh, cover most of Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Korea, Japan. And the countries use the OECD as a secretariat to support policy work in their own countries. So uh, there's different area, different policy areas, everything but defense, really. Mm. So tax is probably one of the major ones that you might've heard about. Some of the discussions that are going on now about taxing multinationals, that's done at the OECD. Agreements are, 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 are sought. There's also uh, trade, a lot of trade discussion around responsibility and supply chains, but even things like uh, classifying tractors for tariffs and all kinds of different things go on. And I work in the International Migration Division, which is part of employment, labor, and social affairs. And it's actually a, an old activity at the OECD, which dates back to the post-war guest worker period when countries were negotiating to get large groups of workers to to take factory jobs and mining jobs in those countries, which were had strong economic development but didn't have enough people. And then you had other countries like Turkey, Italy, Spain, which had an excess of labor. And so this is, it's an old group. Now we do very different work, but it's one of the core policy areas that, that the OECD has always operated on.
2: How the heck did you get involved in that? <laughs> how did you go pretty much from when we knew you in Milton to this? <laughs> you know, taking large leaps and bounds. 35 I, years. <laughs> just a mere third, like, you know, painting with large strokes. Like, how did you get into that?
4: I'm sorry. No, I think for some people that there's there's been a plan and you follow this plan in your life. And I think that my life, this this it really only makes sense looking backwards. That it's Mm. a series of things that just happened almost by chance. No? Mm. That none of this was in in a plan. This was never my objective. I never planned to live in in the city or to have the kind of job that I have right now. It's just bit by bit, you have opportunities appear, you open one door, you open one little tiny box that leads to something else. It leads to something else, and it's a bit of a mistake. And I'm grateful for the chance to be here now. But certainly, when they hired me, they didn't. I wasn't planning to stay for a very long time, and they thought I was someone different from who I was. I think so. I think so, looking back,
1: <laughs> and it's
3: been 12 years.
4: <laughs> there, yeah, 13, 14 years now. Wow. So.
1: But, John, the, the, the work that you're doing at the OECD is super important. We couldn't be more timely. And there have been so many shifts in policy around migration. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the, the larger changes that you've seen happen around how countries think about the issue of migration? Because it's not, I think, from the U.S. perspective, we talk about it in a very different way than Europe does. But can you unpack some of that for us?
4: Sure. No, it's nice to hear from you, Farah, also, I, because I'm sure you believe in multilateralism, So, and multilateralism comes in and out of favor in, in some con, uh, countries. And so when you work in a organization that's based on multilateralism, you hope that countries see some advantage in dialogue in, in exchanging experience with other countries, and that it's, that it's not just a, a case of uh, universal exceptionalism and countries saying, well, we're such an, in a unique situation that there's nothing to learn from anyone and there's nothing really to, to share with anyone. So we, we just operate independently. And migration is a particularly tricky issue. Unlike other areas, it's not. there really aren't any statutory instruments at the international level. I mean, there's. I think what's changed in the past 13 years about the way that this is discussed, there's been, when I first came, it was just before the global financial crisis and there was labour shortages everywhere and most countries were panicking, well, not panicking, but concerned about how to secure workers, and there was a strong business voice to increase access to international mobility and recruitment. And then that all collapsed with the global financial crisis. And the discussion has shifted a bit also uh, with geopolitical situations so that when you had the refugee surge in the mid-2010s, which affected especially European countries, much of the policy focus was on managing this this episode and downstream effects on integration of people who had received protection following that. But I mean, we work with many different countries and each country has their own priority. And one of the greatest things about this job is actually traveling a lot and working with countries like Korea and Japan, which are different points in thinking about what migration means for their societies. We're also agnostic as, as, as a policy center, as international c- c- civil servants, about what what the right policy is in this area it's not like health policy where you want the people not to die I mean, you can measure your policy well for people are dying you, that's bad if people are living that's good and migration isn't like that's not like more is better and less is worse it has to match with whatever political targets you've set for it so it's a bit tricky what, because you never you, really have a single voice
3: i'm so curious how do you engage in dialogue with other members is it, are there large meetings or do you go one-on-one with fair, like how, how does, how does that actually
4: work? That's a great question. If you come to the OECD and you visit, if you're in Paris, I'll take you around once this pandemic is over, hopefully. And so, yes, it's a talk shop. So the, there's their offices, but the core is the conference center, which in a usual year might have 200,000 people cycling through over the course of the year. And it's government officials who meet in Meeting rooms with interpreters it looks very much like a UN meeting although it's not a UN structure and it's government officials who will present policy questions and discuss among each other and sometimes it's a peer review process so you'll, as a secretariat, you'll actually do the work of preparing all the documents and the countries will respond. You might make recommendations and other countries will say, we agree, we don't agree, we think this is good, we, we've done this and it worked for us and then it's, it can be a take it or leave it. The other situation is that a country might come to us and say, we have a question, could you help us out? And so we'll go and we'll work with them and we will put together essentially a review of a certain policy area, which then they can use either to push through a reform, to support a reform, or to, let's say, justify a previous reform. Do you or if they don't agree, they
3: Do you get to know these people? Do you build relationships over time? Or is it kind of like a revolving door where there's a different issue and there's a different stakeholder? It depends on the country.
4: I mean, some countries have real revolving doors. So if you look at the... Japan has has a kind of a Mandarin policy where every civil servant has to change jobs every two years. So nobody knows anything about... Mm. Nobody knows very much about their policy area because they've only been there... they're just about to leave and then you have other countries where the entire everyone changes every time there's an election Hmm. and so you have a relationship with someone and then there's a coalition change and suddenly every Hmm. all the emails are bounced back to you but there is some continuity
1: official uh, and just very streamlined adventure isn't it john i like i'm (laughs) I'm listening farah's got stories to tell No, so does john i mean it's 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 just funny hearing it from the outside, because you think, who would ever design something like this? But we, yeah. we all did. Yes, it's really special. John, you know, I am curious. You mentioned COVID. I mean, I know that being in Paris during COVID must have been really challenging. We had a guest earlier in season one, Soledad, who is in Madrid during all of this. so She talked a little bit about sort of European response to COVID. And I know Spain and France are two different um, models of how they handled it. How are you guys doing now? And how does it, how does it feel to be there at this stage in the, in the COVID adventure?
4: So it looks like we're coming out a bit from the worst in terms of the capacity of the hospitals to manage the situation. So the, the alarm has been downgraded substantially. I'm due for my second jab tomorrow. So the vaccination is, is moving along. The people could not wait to get out. And so I don't know what will happen that there's a lot of people out and about who are enjoying the open air. I, I bike to and from work, and it's. I often get stuck in a crowd of revelers along the river. Oh. <laughs> I just <laughs> left. And then so, you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's a helpless, because you're in this mass of people who are unmasked and very drunk, oh, wow. and you're trying to push your bicycle through them. But what was it like? It was very, very sad. Paris was tr- struck hard. A lot of the people we knew were... Very very sick. Uh, a lot of the people we know, the older people, uh, passed away from COVID. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were a couple areas, and and of course we have a lot of contacts with 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 Italy still, back and forth quite often. And there as well, really just devastated. As so many of my friends lost their parents oh, uh, at the beginning, oh. especially, and especially when you couldn't have you couldn't visit your 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 parent in the hospital and. You couldn't have a proper funeral. That was. It was really. It was very sad. So it seems like it was eons ago, but because the situation is now much less serious. But I mean, professionally, it's been. I I traveled all the time for work beforehand. All the time, and now I haven't taken a plane in in ten months, which I'm happy about. But certainly, it's been. It's been. It's been a, a, a real transformation.
2: You must have they, a lot of miles. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's zipping I, back and forth in Europe, aren't you?
4: Well, actually, but it's OECD, so Asia. Asia
1: too, yes.
4: And, and the U.S. occasionally. And so, yes, it covers a lot of countries. No, there's no pride in miles now. I, I'm, there's miles, I have mile shame. <laughs> 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 what, is the, what is the Swedish word for it? <laughs> Middle age, I guess. <laughs>
1: Well, you know john one of the reasons that we started this podcast was this sort of we're in middle age and we're we were in the pe- in the midst of the pandemic and we were thinking about our classmates from Milton and wondering you know how they're thinking about life at this moment and what reflections that they have. And so Diana's point about yeah we're, we're the midpoint and we can kind of laugh about the mile thing where a couple of years ago it was just normal, right? It's just you know getting on the plane and doing your thing. Are you gonna shift the way you operate when when we get to a place where it's safe to do so or are you gonna stick stick to home a little bit more
4: well i think i mean i, I think it's important to change the way that we travel i think it's important not to not to take these kinds of short trips and, and unless they're really essential to be a bit aware of the impact of this but i and i don't think this is pandemic related but i think you could see the fact that during the first months of the pandemic, you could hear birds. You could had sil- you had silence. The sky was blue. The dolphins were coming back into business, and you realize that there's there's an impact in this activity. And this sounds really, really, really simple, but I think there there's there's an a- flying around all the time is is in a way it's disrespectful for vulnerable people. For it's it's, it's like I, I, now if I'm sitting on a plane, this like crapping on farmers
3: mm-hmm. in a way.
4: <laughs> no. Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and it's true that as individuals, we don't make much of a difference in, in some of the activities, but, but it certainly I, I, it's different. And the other nice thing about living in Europe is that you do have alternatives for travel. You can take the train, mm. which is still more expensive. And, I, and, and it, it, it's, So I think these cheap flights have really distorted the way that people travel in that sense. But the night trains are supposed to come back now. Mm-hmm. Many of them are canceled. We were canceled. We were regular users of the Paris Rome night train, the Palatino, really big fans of the Palatino, which was canceled a few years ago. And I think as we come out, that will come back. And, and I think it's important to have that kind of choice. I and mean, people talk about freedom and choice. Freedom is also the freedom to, to not have a car, the freedom to not have to take a plane rather than seeing these as being uh, the route to freedom.
1: Certainly in countries like the OECD and the United States has, I mean, we, we are, we're looking at conversations about climate change globally, but we're not talking about really true transformational thinking and the way in which our societies operate. And I I find it really interesting, actually from the policy perspective that we're not getting to sort of the human infrastructure of how we, how we think and what we can do to build resilience and, and all those things but this is not supposed to be a policy wonky kind of podcast (laughs) this is supposed to be a fun podcast yes please yeah no so one of the things that we haven't touched on john is sort of your milton experience and do you think that there were any threads from milton that sort of sparked and pulled you and in the direction that you are now going or even your wanderlust going going abroad, you know?
4: No, I don't think so. I mean, I <laughs> I feel <laughs> I know okay, for the
1: good. podcast okay. I should Excellent.
4: say. Yes,
1: <laughs> no, yes. No, no, no. Be honest. You
4: start coming
1: yeah, you
3: was living in Paris. Paris.
4: No, I absolutely not. I think that this is really I mean, I think if I look at the the different kind of jagged steps that 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 are between me at 17 and me today, don't really don't really produce any kind of linear thread, no, you know, or a, a common idea that, that goes back. But I, I, I this is a question I, I, made the mistake in high school of having a diary. Oh, and, I did too. And <laughs> that's not necessarily a good thing because yes, I have a window into my 16 year old head.
2: Yeah, We <laughs> should compare so, notes sometime.
4: <laughs> and so it's something that.
2: Especially because your daughter is close to that age, right?
4: oh, she doesn't know about this. <laughs> no, no, no,
2: no, no, no. I know she doesn't. And she won't hear this. But she is at the age that she is and you are at the age that you are, which are two, what, two years apart. You wonder what she is experiencing versus what you experienced as that kid.
3: And, and was that diary kind of dark and tortured and angsty or was it more sort of silly and superficial I'm fat. Uh, like yeah I mean I have I have so many cringeworthy moments but I'm curious
2: <laughs> how you
3: how you see yours
4: I would yeah I would say I was
3: would not say it was written in not the tiny silly. language
2: that you wrote you yes, very such tiny, tiny script
4: tiny very tiny, tiny. I can't really <laughs> read it anymore I need a magnifying glass to scan, <laughs> it and point. And scan it and enlarge it scan it and no I actually Read that at the time; it seemed normal to me. <laughs> and well, I, it's the yes, but mostly unlikable, like a uh, very destructive and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so it's I the think, angry, uh,
3: the angry, angsty teen.
4: Not even angry; just a jerk, I would say. Yeah,
3: <laughs> well, I mean, you, know, one you one met sixteen-year-old boys, though? right? Yeah. Yeah. We
1: have. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, you guys were great. Yeah. All of They you. get better over time. Really to- yeah. No, it's, it's, like, for it's those- nice. For those I- listeners who don't know, Milton what, had had a girl school and a boys school and then it combined later on and it just it just set up all these very strange dynamics, gender dynamics. You think like, that's you were- what
0: you think that's what it was? The, just the the legacy, the legacy of two separate no, schools? No, okay. I
1: don't think that was the only that thing.
3: Contributed, Dave, that sure. but the contributed for the girls
2: lived off campus and the boys lived on campus. Everything was convenient for them, not for the girls. Well, the homerooms right. were in different places for some the time. Rooms, I mean, it we was were just, so separated. We were. From each for other. Time. I, and I, and I, we
1: sang and the
3: boys didn't even sing, right? Yes. Yeah, right. You didn't you guys sing, sing him? me yeah.
1: so upset <laughs> that we but had to I sing. What I am really curious about, John, is- I liked the singing. As <laughs> I did too, actually. Your your diary is in pen and paper form. It means it can be burned. It means it's not living in a cloud somewhere. It it's private. Who have it? Unlike the generation of your daughter who, if they should choose to write texts, that someday become um, their diary when they're applying for some job someday and they can pull out where what they were saying at, you know, 17 or 15 or... Twelve or whatever it is. So you're lucky. You have that. You could have been a jerk, but only you know that you were a jerk. So just feel good about that.
4: Well, anybody who knew me at the time, but
1: no, it's true. I didn't think you were were No, it's true.
4: It's very, I think the, I mean, that's a bit reductive, I suppose, to say that, that it's just that you realize how little, I mean, I realized how little I really understood of what was going on and had very strong (laughs) convictions about the world and what it was like which were completely wrong.
2: Oh, Meredith. I know. <laughs> uh, can that's, I ask? No, wait, a, that's, that's a good, that's a good yeah, question.
4: I so I think, I mean, I think a lot of the dynamic, I mean, this social situation that we were in, what the this, this situation of the school and some of the, not just the school, but the the, the position of this kind of an institution at the time was something that uh, obviously we weren't able to step outside of and look at, but, what, what was going on, what does it mean to go to basically what to consume is luxury good, which is this this, this particular institution, which which, which is you know, not like arguing for like a sumptuary law that there should be uh, a ban on, on luxury goods. But I, I, I think that that aspect and, and what the institution was trying to do and the role that it played in society was something that we didn't have a lot of awareness of. I think the other aspect was that it was an institution that was trying as hard as it could to protect people from the consequences of their actions. I mean, and Mm. the perception I had was that it was punishment, but actually it was designed, not, not, it was kind of a a protective organ institution that was meant to keep, basically keep people from, from suffering the consequences of their actions. or let's say and then you could see that with Ray. I mean with Ray, who was a friend of mine and who appears often in the diary and, and with whom I spent a lot of time, but that he was protected and, and and I was protected and I think anyone most of the people there were were protected. And and at the time we didn't really appreciate that aspect that, that was it was a position of privilege that I think we weren't really aware of. Or I wasn't, at least in my diary besides just missing that I had no clue what was driving other people's behavior. And I was sure I knew.
3: (laughs) And I think we didn't realize we were in such a bubble, right? I mean, we were in this incredibly elite institution. And I just, I didn't really know that. I really just sort of thought this was the world. This was, I didn't, I mean, it's amazing how, how naive I was and I didn't figure that out until so much later that, i mean my husband went to public school in like a farming community in maryland and he just is amazed at the stories i tell him and yeah. and w- how you know people would intervene and take care of you and the, you know people would f- figure out if you needed additional resources or it just not that we were always protected for
4: no but I mean, I know, mean, i think but, it's true it's i mean this is a question that's about whether this kind of broader, I mean, this is the way from the diary now, but whether this is something which contributes to democracy or is, is anti-democratic in its form. I mean, if you spend seven or eight times as much per student as a public school, then it's clear that you're getting this enormous resource, you know, which is, and it's that's that's excluding all the social capital you get and, and the capital costs of these wonderful buildings. And, and I absolutely didn't appreciate it uh, at the time, but I think that there's something uh bit anti-democratic in that kind of in that kind of a system and I'm looking back at the diary and i look at that and i think really this is what you were thinking about in that environment when I mean, you, you with all these, these 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 wonderful opportunities and this is this is what was in your head at 15 16. Oh, and you know
1: it's so it's so interesting that you're talking about it like this and and i'm i think it's very insightful actually how you're how you're positioning it and i think one of the themes that has come through in the conversations that we have had with our classmates is some of that reflection and knowing, I mean, let's first of all, give ourselves a break. We were teenagers and no teenagers are like insightful beyond belief, but some are. But but to Diana's point, I mean, we, of course we were in a little bubble and we didn't realize how small the bubble was and how elite it was. But I do want to say, because I think as I'm listening to both of you guys, both Diana and John talk about sort of not knowing, it's interesting because my reaction was, but I did. And I think that is because I knew that without this check mark next to my name, and I did, if without this elite school and, you know, pedigree, I would be looked at differently because of the background that I come from. And that's interesting. And I don't know if it was that severe. I'm describing it in a very severe way right now, but I think that there was just aspects of, knowing that to be accepted in america you needed to have certain things next to your name one of them is a great school you know the ability to communicate all of those kinds of things and to your point about you know i guess you didn't make the point on equity or or sort of being fair in america but i think it just circles back around to the conversations we're having in the united states at least right now about what is fair and equal privilege for people who who were not in some ways coddled with their education. So I, I'm so glad you raised that. I think it's really, really yeah. important. Were you a day student or a boarder? I can't remember.
4: I was both. I spent uh, the first part of my time there as a boarder, and then I was uh, asked not to live there anymore.
2: Whoa, why? What?
0: Yeah, what happened Maybe,
4: there? Do we <laughs> get the real can, scoop can we on we get this, that? We
2: like, <laughs> don't John have to go. Well, let's you know, put it, it this too. way.
4: No, as as you said, these are you know, that as now you have all your dirt out there on social media and I've been managed to keep the dirt out of social media for up until this point in my life. And those of you who were in the class, many of you will remember various episodes there in our junior year, which <laughs> led to this transition in my enrollment situation.
3: <laughs> I remember a couple. Good.
0: I assume you violated certain <laughs> campus rules. I mean you didn't hurt anybody, but I assume that's what we're talking about here. Just so- well,
4: that's in the school was very the school was very scandal averse, right? Yes, and so part despite of despite the, the, that the interest, fact that
2: there were so many scandals occurring within.
4: I mean, this was after a number of different scandals. There was the Choate scandal in '83, which had caused you know so. It, and so, I think that they were afraid of something like that. And there were other things that happened, so that again, coming back to this idea of protecting people from the consequences of their actions, I didn't realize you know some of the let's say mental anguish that might have been going on. In, at, uh, in, in, in about how to deal with with some of these these potential potentially scandalous situations. I mean, there are scandals later on, but I think what's interesting is looking back that these these kinds of institutions have managed to ride through them mm-hmm. <laughs> without really any well, reputational I, loss.
0: Might uh, you know? Might you be? Hint- I, sorry, just let me one question, Di. I'm sorry. Might you be pointing pointing out some irony in the fact that the school was? I think the school was pretty famously strict when it came to alcohol drugs any illicit stuff and yet did the did the school in a way or maybe a karmic way pay the price later because every scandal that's hit Milton in the last 15 years has been for what i'd call much more disturbing behavior on the behalf of faculty staff etc
4: so I don't know if it's paying the price. I mean, again, I, it was the '80s, and there was there was. I think that the, there were different things going on. I don't know because I'm not in boarding school now, and I, I I would never put my kid into that situation. I don't really, as I said, I don't really believe that these are institutions that are good for society as a whole. I mean, I think that one, I mean, That school was wonderful. It was a wonderful educational experience. But I, it's like it's like Farah, you mentioned the possibilities that you get out of this, right? It, it's true, uh, but it's like saying, well, is a lottery the good anti-poverty policy, the fact that you give some people something, and, but that's not really a solution to a broader problem. So to answer your question, Dave, is, is, is I think there was a continuity that there was an attempt. I think the other issue was that there was an involvement of donors um, and outside figures who, who were interested in protecting People. I mean, I, I. It's strange to have this on the podcast. I didn't realize where this this whole question was going to come up. Anything it's a delicate.
1: Wish, yeah. Way, yeah, yeah. And Would by you, the way, This is not a lot, and we we can edit whatever. Absolutely, yeah, including, di- including
4: the diary. Uh, you do you remember the episode then? I mean, I, if I can yeah. speak off the record, and I, I, I can. T- yeah. Well, I, I just, do. Just let us know. <laughs> I mean, so I think,
0: just let us know what so you don't. Is, okay. This is. Yeah. Okay. Know. So I. And can, on the other hand, I don't want. I don't want. There's yin and yang here because I'm constantly fighting with far in a nice way, but but. We also, we want, Farah, we want there to be frank discussions Juice. on the podcast that yeah. are interesting, right? If he
1: has a career ahead of him in a really well, conservative he, organization. Okay, he's a big I boy.
4: He can hate. decide. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, so there was, and I think what I can say is this, was, I mean, to come back to this idea of what's the threat. So there is one threat, and I think it is an understanding. What I learned in high school that was very valuable, especially in my Italian years, is that influential rich people can get away with anything. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but there was, basically there was this drug distribution thing, Mm -hmm. the junior year, and in which I was one of the players, and There was a, this came to the attention of the faculty because someone had mentioned it to the faculty out of concern, and it was brought to the headmaster's attention. And what was was important was that one of the students who had a parent who was a major donor, the major donor was the one who had alerted the headmaster saying, this is what's going on, but I don't want these kids to be thrown out because they're friends of my son. And so the headmaster was in a bind, right? Now, the fortune for me was that this person had not said which of the people involved were his son's friends. So there was no separation between those who were. And so basically, the the school was put a lid on it. But to to say it like in a public way, I think, so the story was in junior year, there was a drug scandal and the school decided not to punish anyone because a donor had intervened, had informed the school of this event and had given the information on the condition that there would be no punishments or no punishments. At the same time, I think that the school would have liked to have implemented its usual disciplinary policy, but it didn't. And so I think what the, the thread that I that, that brings me to later work was this understanding that there are rules and there are institutions, but there are factors which overrule rules and which overrule institutions and which lead to continuous hypocrisy. And that sometimes the beneficiaries of that can be accidental, but it does undermine trust in whatever institutions you have. So
3: it's interesting. I always thought that maybe, or not always, but I th- somehow in my head, I thought maybe you were an incredibly deft negotiator, that somehow you orchestrated things to work in your favor so that you didn't get in trouble.
4: And that you outsmarted that
0: go with that john that's so, a good, good
4: story no actually i mean that's what i thought at the time i thought well I and mean, it was certainly the reaction was not out of intelligence but probably out of destructiveness was that if it were a very small event there would be consequences if it were a very big event then there would then the school couldn't possibly do anything because mm-hmm. they couldn't possibly expel 20 people Right, and this was it huge, a, as I recall.
3: Was it huge. probably it was, was twenty
4: people. I don't
2: yeah, remember at this twenty-five at all.
4: people. So the <laughs> idea was at the beginning to try to implicate as many people in as many possible things, so that the headmaster said, "Looked at me, he's like, oh." When he realized the magnitude of this, that and this is John McKenzie, nothing. right? No, no, it was actually the headmaster. I remember sitting on his couch in his house. No, no, it was the pay. Oh, Jerry oh, Payne later. Perry. Okay. Yeah. So that's why when I heard about Ray, I thought, well, this is sort of a must have been a similar kind of conversation uh, where it's like, oh, uh, we can bury this. Uh, oh, we buried mm-hmm. stuff before.
2: What's so uh, interesting is that the parent of the kid, the parent knew this and pretty much passively aggressively just dropped the bomb because that, he could have, he or she, they could have not said anything, but to, to give all this information. To the school and say here's the information but don't do anything with it well I
4: think this is also an arrogance of wealth I mean it's it's like Mm. you you of course the headmaster is going to answer your phone call of course you're going to you know and I I wasn't there I didn't hear the call and and but but certainly at the time I didn't realize I I thought it was I didn't realize the the severe the difficult situation which everyone had been placed
1: What's interesting uh, to think about is the age of the headmaster or any of the people who were in charge in the administration because they were younger than we were or are now as they were making these decisions. It's, it's just a fascinating. But John, you I mean, you said something really important. I mean, I think that there's a lesson to be learned, which is really valuable from Milton time, which is there aren't equal consequences for everyone. And that that boy, this world is awfully elite, isn't it? And you can get away with a whole lot if you have. The right connections, which is not a surprise, as, as we look at the world through our fifty-plus-year-old eyes. But, but
3: it's—I find that know. so depressing—the thought yeah. that rich people well, can basically get away with anything. That's terrible. I think that we've seen that. Thing. I mean, I
4: think we've seen that in in many different forms, and we'll keep seeing it. And it's not something which is unique to the U.S. I, I think I mean, to come back, something Farrah said that struck me about the value of the name. One, if you say, "Well, why did you leave?" america which didn't ask me but and one of the, the powerful why did you
2: leave of, america <laughs>
4: <no>. <laughs> but one of the powerful aspects of going to another country and switching switching languages and so on is that you zero out you zero out a lot of that social capital so mm. when i went to rome and i started putting together a life there all those little signaling mechanisms like where you went to school and what you wear and how you speak and it's they don't really carry any weight, so in a way, it was starting over again mm-hmm. without that checkbox next to him. Now, obviously, I was young, I was white, I was a guy, I had a US passport. So, these aspects you know, you get this automatic line of credit up to a certain point, but a lot of the added investment that my parents had sacrificed to give me, I zeroed out by leaving the country, <laughs> no, know, without and. And, and it's been much less useful for me since then than it would have been if I had stayed. So I think that was also part of the decision was to kind of zero out that and get away from that, that aspect there, just to reset
3: a bit. How did your parents feel about you
4: just taking off like that? They thought there was something terrible that I couldn't tell them. And that's why I, was, <laughs> that's why I wasn't coming back. They were looking for the diary. <laughs> what is it that he's afraid to tell us that he has to go live <laughs> in another continent? What I mean, is it? Where,
1: where are your parents based? Are they, are they still in the States or, I mean, yeah. Around? So
4: yeah, no, so I my dad passed away about 20 years ago and my mom is in the U S yes. But I have, I have a brother in Finland. I have another brother in LA. I have a, sister in Chicago so we're all really all so over they here. all scattered <laughs> yeah yes exactly like free-range chickens
1: <laughs> yes so can, can I work oh, I'm sorry go, no, 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 I just go. was going to ask John to uh, I know that there is some sort of family knowledge of Dave's family and yours and I was really <laughs> curious on how that has happened how, how I, I didn't know
4: anything about this until I mentioned to my mom that I was doing this podcast with Dave but Yeah. So, and she said oh that's the son of Saul. Yes. <laughs> best looking boy at Runkle Middle School in Brooklyn in 1954. <laughs> oh yes. That, so the thing about my mom is that, God bless her, she doesn't necessarily remember what day of the week it is, but she remembers every boy she mm. ever liked.
3: Huh? What's that's her memory. That's she how it works.
4: And, and, and day well. Honestly, she went out. She, your dad and, and her went to a party. She was so happy to go to the party. And he left with another girl. Oh, no. That could have been and my mom. Great. Yeah, he, he he <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: Oh,
4: no, that's hope no,
3: But it was your mom.
4: Is, it, well, is your mom named Marty? No. So she remembered all the names. Now, I don't remember. But wow. the other thing was, apparently, your dad had this thing for this girl who wasn't Jewish.
1: Well, and
4: that's, and she that's... was into him. But the family, mm, the, the, that was not really <laughs> acceptable at all. Uncle Middle School,
0: absolutely right. So your
4: dad did date the prettiest Jewish girl, but <laughs> yeah. she, he really liked this other girl. And my mom said, Oh, I remember sitting behind them in the theater. Is this getting a bit too close? No, for you, like no,
0: that? my life's an open book. There was a and... play,
4: and there was yeah. Saul, yeah, sitting next to this girl that everyone knew that he liked, oh. and she liked him, but nothing was going to happen because
3: that's so great that your mom just remembers all
4: that. And... Well,
0: that, that, <laughs> that's a yes. wonderful story. That could be my mom in the movie theater with my dad because my mom was Raised Irish Catholic, she later converted to Judaism before they got married.
4: It's her, yeah. it's, it's totally amazing. her. Yeah. What's her? It has I'm sorry, what's her. your mom's name?
0: Susan. Susan. she was, I oh,
4: no, su- so it's a different. No, I'm sorry, it's, it's a, All so right. you, apparently your dad had a history. <laughs> it
0: could be well, but but the dynamic is the same because they had to sneak around for a while without telling their parents just because of the religion thing. Yeah,
4: wow. So there you go, middle yeah. school, he was getting good at it.
0: Okay,
2: <laughs> thank Seriously. you. Seriously, what's your mom's have- name,
0: John? May, may I tell you? Jude-
4: with. She was at the time. She was known as Judy.
0: Very kind of you to mention. It will brighten <laughs> brighten Saul's day. He's had a rough year. He's he's still he's still rehabbing and recovering from a serious neck injury. But it's, yeah, i was sorry
4: to hear that. Yeah, my mom as well.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. the The Brookline community is has. I mean, I'm getting calls still, calls and emails from people checking in on him and saying. Exactly the kind of same thing that your mom just said, John. It's like, oh, he was the he was the most handsome boy in high school.
4: I, I also yeah, think it's, it's worth some. It's worth something. This is something that, you no, know, that's that's really worth. We something. need to we need to show some photos
3: from yeah, 1954.
1: Absolutely. Please, I'll, I'll see what I can or find. Whatever
2: year, oh my God, I, yeah. I want to Google that. I have a question, John. One of the things, you're clearly unbelievably bright. Like, I can barely keep up with what you're saying. Just incre- the, the multitude of levels at which you examine things, it, it's just to me. My question is, you also have an extraordinary sense of humor. You're one of the funniest people, most silly people that I know. And I love that dichotomy. And like, are you able to bring your humor into your work or is your work very, very serious and serious? And also what languages do you speak during a day?
4: Right. Okay. So I'm like Charles V. So I speak uh, Spanish to God, French to men, Italian to women and German to my dog. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 but so first, that's why I hang out with you, Meredith, because you always say nice things. Though it's always it's true. It's just a bash it of love. It is. Just whenever I'm feeling sad, Sancy I just have a message to Meredith. I like, oh, call Meredith. is going to say something nice to me. I
2: will, because it's true. So,
4: that's important, right? You got to have a friend important. who says nice things. Absolutely. So this. So again, zeroing out, right? So. Humor doesn't necessarily translate, you work in an international organization, people will not get your jokes, (laughs) right? You cannot be self-effacing because half of the cultures in the world don't have self-effacement, like don't have ironic Mm self-effacement. So if you go and you're doing a presentation, you say, well, this is, you know, we've been working on this for the last six months, but I'm not sure it's any good. I think that, you know, this is as best we could do. You'll have half the people in the room who say, why am I here? This guy's an idiot. And he just told us that, (laughs) Right. So and it's worse because it's tri- you know you have interpreters because which so that you don't know what the interpreter is going to say. Can you you can't like air quote irony for the interpreters. You know? <laughs> so if you say, you know this is this work is probably not the best thing you've seen this year. They'll say you know. I you can, you know? You're like what the heck? So you, you, you completely lose time? That. right? So you have to be very careful, and also you have to. I mean, it's, it changes a bit when you have to communicate with people from different places then you have to speak differently you have to you know after years in italy having mm. to give presentations where my colleagues did not speak english very well i had to speak in such a way that it was sure they would understand me. really right mm. and people are like what are you what happened why are you speaking so straight i have to because otherwise the people i work with will complain that they didn't understand the thing i said
2: do you find the humor but like you know, there's a certain, like, French humor and an Italian humor and American humor and how you bridge that. Oh, I know I I'm working, asking.
4: At, working in an international environment is such a festival of racism. <laughs> like, every possible prejudice you could have about anybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, you confirm it every day.
3: <laughs> well, Meredith grew up in Belgium B- Belgium for a while, so I'm sure she remembers yeah, remember. the.
2: Yeah, that's why I'm asking the question, because you think differently in another language there are different words I mean my I used to be able to understand and speak Italian and there are certain words that express certain emotions perfectly in Italian that don't exist in English or French
4: yes that's true I mean Italian is it's, it's a very fun language to speak it fills mm. your mouth mm-hmm. basically it's like you're when you speak Italian you always have it's a mouthful and so I, I for me it's I love to insult people in Italian <laughs> <laughs>
3: My dad my marriage, used to do
4: that. <laughs> yeah, it's very natural. My marriage is in Italian, so yeah,
3: that's so fantastic. everything
4: I do. So my, so most of my, my, I mean, that's the, like most the most important things that go on in my life are done in Italian.
2: And then work is French or English.
4: It's a bit of a mix. When I came to the OECD, it was still very much a bilingual organization, but the dominance of English has become a point where it's really just a few holdouts who still speak French I mean the French are required to speak French in meetings so it's really just you know French and Bel- France and, and Belgium and Switzerland but it used to be honestly the, the French was was a much more important diplomatic language when I started in that environment like where did you
1: ago. learn Italian you didn't learn it at- no in
4: Italy in Italy it, when I came
1: oh so yeah. you had nothing before you arrived
4: I had like nine months of wow college
1: Italian pretty impressive
0: but I wouldn't really call it. We've got a photo of my dad and me, <laughs> me. Uh, that's that's me oh. when I was uh six, Is that six, Saul? Yes. That's Saul. Yes. We,
4: want Saul, that's Saul yes? we want to see we want to see Saul in the glory
0: years. I'll, okay, that's the best I could do for now. He's in his, his oh, tw- I think like that's a pretty but... cute
4: photo, of Dave yeah, though.
0: Well, well,
2: Dave, you <laughs> have <laughs> That's having not why I put it, it up. <laughs>
0: People used um, to say my John- dad looked like Burt Reynolds. I'm sorry. Back to John.
2: Okay. So my question is, with all of those languages going on, what language do you dream in?
4: When I dream of you, Meredith, it's always <laughs> in the language of love.
2: Oh, thank you so much, John. Appreciate it so much. I it's do a- too.
4: Nicely done. No. <laughs> my daughter says, "Ah, oh, why do people always ask me this question? What language do I dream in? I don't oh, know. Really? Whatever. Yeah. yeah, so whatever works, basically. I mean, I think that's in general a case for languages. Yeah. You speak, speak What? It, so it, it's just contextual. I mean, honestly, having a kid changed my language because before it was really, I was living in Italy, I spoke Italian all day. But then when you have a child, you're like, well, what am I going to say to this kid? Yeah. What language am I going to speak? Yeah. You know, and so it's natural that you would speak your childhood language. It always freaks me out when I see people not speaking their childhood language with a child. Seems to me something terribly wrong, and so that's added another language, the household, which my wife doesn't understand. So it creates a kind of a triangular situation where we have a family language, and then there's an individual language, so on, and then she's got her own professional school language. And,
2: that's so. Fantastic. And she also
4: likes to insult people in Italian. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so your kid is clearly trilingual, and and do you, do you incorporate, you know, like when you're speaking, is it ever like franglais, or you know? It, where you like throw in a word he, that, that just works with your brain, that whatever it is.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, I think this is a bit, this is a lot more common than, it's common. It's a common situation. And I think it used to be a lot more common in, let's say pre, pre-contemporary periods when you had a lot of minorities living in, in contexts where you had a lot of different contextual languages and trade languages and so on. And we've gone through this kind of bu- brutal national national trend in which countries have become associated with one language mm. which wasn't always the case and and i think that we're mixing it up again and so it's great. important to be able to accept a bunch of different languages
2: i want to come to dinner at your house and just be quiet and listen
4: i don't think that's possible you quiet
2: <laughs> okay fine right true cool. so oh, also, why would you want to have
4: dinner table if you're quiet the whole point yeah of true you is you can say all right never mind you can speak mind. all the languages. Yeah, Meredith, you, you I noticed you, we were able to do it all. Yeah.
2: yeah, I was. I was proud. So when you
4: dream of me, what, what language do you
2: dream <laughs> of? The language of love!
0: Oh, my God. Hi, this is David Yaz, producer of The Link Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through Patreon. The Link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com slash the link podcast we have some cool ways of thanking you for your support including t-shirts mugs and shout outs on the show you can do us a solid for as little as five dollars a month and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond once again please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast now back to the show you mentioned Ray Bono, and un- unfortunately, it's one of the sad stories of, of Milton's past that has made the news in recent years. Ray Bono, longtime drama teacher, we all had him. We all knew him. You mentioned that he's, he comes up in your diary, I guess, memories of being friends with him. What are your feelings on this now that he has been accused of being a serial abuser and the school apparently let him get away with abusing kids, taking them on trips and such?
4: So I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, I knew that this was something that was going on. I mean, I was friends with him and, and he obviously tried to let's for lack of a better expression, get into my pants. Really? It was just standard. Oh yeah, sure. Totally. But at the time it's, he just it seemed really kind of foppish and ridiculous and not threatening. and I mean, kind of pathetic. Like this was an aspect of his, that was not just pathetic, but actually at the time it was as if it, it gave us power over him. And he was, you know, that he it made him seem like kind of vulnerable. And, and, and in fact, you know, he had to do our bidding in a way because we knew, which put, I suppose, mm. which put me as as much of a culprit as 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 others. And I have to say, Ray was very supportive of me as a person. I mean, he wasn't someone who he supported my college applications, he supported everything. I mean, really, at that level, I think, and and I know other people, other friends of mine, who did not respond to his advances also were supported by him through the years so personally for me at the time it didn't seem that strange it also seemed to me kind of part of prep school experience because you read all these books about british prep schools where this stuff is going on and uh, it's kind of normal it's if you didn't have it it's almost like you didn't you're missing something right if you don't have some teachers trying to get into your bed it's not a British-style prep school. <laughs> uh, like this was what WASP prep schools were like. The people, you know, it just appears in the background in all those preppy books that you have to read. That there's always some teacher who's trying to go to bed with a student. So it, it, it didn't seem criminal to me at the time, and I did genuinely like Ray, and, and he was and, and Ray was 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 supportive of me personally. So when it came out, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised it took so long, and it was made me sad also that he was able to go away and 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 very sleazily enjoy 20 years of uh, con- abusing people I heard a story from a teacher is a friend of mine that he had told he, was, well, he said I have this really wonderful bathroom in my place in Kuala Lumpur which is my playroom oh boy no sounds like super creepy that that is it's bad and, and obviously I'm you know, it's. it's and I talked to the police uh, and gave them out all the information that I had with dates and times and, and so that on was, of experiences.
0: That, sorry, John, that was in recent years. You talked to the police?
4: Yeah, no, I talked to after this came out. I talked to police. Right. I didn't answer the letter from the law firm because it was too vague. It was like, did you know about something <laughs> that happened while you were in high school? Like, Yeah, I know plenty of stuff that happened when I was in high school. I was in high school. Are you kidding? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right? It wasn't like, did you know that Ray Bono was trying to get into was trying to rape students like that if they had, I said, Oh yeah, I would have. Yeah. So totally. But no, that wasn't the letter. The letter was, Do you know, <laughs> are you willing to talk to us confidentially?
0: Was, was there a moment it went, when it started to become public in recent years, was there a moment where it kind of hit you? Yeah. I, I can't believe I was so casual thinking about that. That was going on back then J- just as a result of, I'm talking about the, the kind of times have changed dynamic.
4: Yeah, totally. Times have changed. And I think, that, you know, that also there's less suspicion. I will say this. After I grad, for graduation, I went to, I was very close, I still am very close to Nan Lee, the English teacher. And I went to her house, just the two of us in Maine, to work for like four days shingling. And I was thinking back now, and I was thinking, you know, would, was my mom foolish to send her 17-year-old boy with some teacher off to an island in Maine like is that is that is that creepy would I send my 17 year old daughter to like you know go do yard work for some 40 year old teacher on an island in Maine no, my daughter wouldn't do yard work but <laughs> <laughs> kind of beside the point so so I, I think people were there was there was a greater degree there was less less hovering and, and I, some, I,
2: I yeah I was just less gonna less say
3: good. the the more the more vulnerable population like the more vulnerable boys were the ones who really suffered at the hands of someone like ray like i've heard a number of people like you who were sort of like i wasn't surprised yes he hit on me yes he made moves on me other boys that we were in school with and i know that it isn't as traumatic to them but for the ones who didn't know who may have been just you know just
4: but easy diana victims. i mean let's that, I mean, some of these boys were younger and he drugged them so, and that I wasn't, I mean, at the time, I wasn't really aware or that didn't really mean anything to me. My friend, Willie, who unfortunately mm-hmm. is dead, he was a freshman at Milton. He died 20 years ago. And he, when he was a freshman, I know that Ray and Ray, and he were smoking pot and he was, I don't know what happened between them. I mean, Willie said to me, "Ah, oh, yeah, Ray was giving this whole thing about how the Greeks used to sleep with their teachers and so on. And so I don't know what happened, but obviously mm-hmm. if you're drugging a 13-year-old and it's a very different situation than, than the one in which I found myself. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there's, there's and, and so, yes, obviously, both, but I think he was hitting on everybody and mm-hmm. using the same strategy with everybody. And if it went worked out for him, all the better. And if it didn't, no harm done for him. All right. We, John, um... Thank
1: you. Thank you very much for being as honest as you are with us about, about what happened at Milton, but also your perspective on it today.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's really just kind of chilling. The more you think about it, isn't it that that it it, it was to a degree normalized and protected and protected, which is just terrible.
2: That's the hard thing.
0: All right. Well, now we're up to the point in the program where Meredith <laughs> asks the one hundred thousand dollar question. Five. We we don't have a name for this question, but it is the question.
2: The Meredith. Question.
0: The Meredith question. Take it away.
2: Particularly with all the things that we were discussing regarding where you are now versus where you were at Milton just in general my question is and I bet my question changes every time it I does ask a little
3: it. bit yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> my <laughs> question today I'm just realizing if you were to go back to your Milton self what would you say now what would you tell that person and additionally What would that person from Milton think about where you are now and who you are now and all that you've done?
4: Please don't make me go back and talk to my 16 year old (laughs) (laughs) son.
2: Oh, but you must. No, no. You must.
4: He's no, like inside
2: one, of you. No, it's like one those the language of love.
4: <laughs> no, it's like one of those terrible movies where you go back in time and you see yourself, and you're like, no, don't do that.
3: Don't pick up that class. It's like um, a Thornton Wilder play.
4: <laughs> so I think it, it's it's kind of a point. I don't know if my 16-year-old self would have listened, would listen to me. And so I mean as I said, I, I kept a diary and I think I was pretty impermeable. To adult wisdom, or anything that approached adult wisdom, unless it, unless it was it came in a certain way, I think what I would say is try to be less destructive. Mm-hmm. It's probably like the the one the one thing you've got this big line of credit, and so you're just running on credit right now, and sooner or later your credit's going to run out, and you're going to be sitting on your took us you know like in some hospital for consumptives and (laughs) and where people hang their laundry outside and and you'll say ah gee i shouldn't have run down that line of credit that they gave me when i was 15 and my 15 and a 16 year old self would probably say i'm not gonna be i alive when i'm your age so why are you even talking to me i'm gonna burn out fast and do great things no and and my 53 year old self would say no you're going to be older and then you're going to get to some point you're just going to like how can i claw myself to retirement without dying And my 16 <laughs> year self would say you old people are so pathetic <laughs> ah just aging heaps of, of flesh just, just, why don't you do something sig- significant no i think we so should I write a play would, <laughs> i think it would not be a very happy exchange mm. and then well. i think probably my fifty-three-year-old self would throw up his hands, say, "Oh, I cannot talk to this kid."
2: Fair enough. Well, I'm super, super, super proud of who you've become and of who you were, and all the things that you're doing—they're—they're they're extremely remarkable, really special, and—and and you're, you're doing oh. extraordinary things, and I'm beyond impressed.
0: Jo- John, is there a place where our listeners can find out more about what you do, get in touch, etc.?
4: Oh, yes. If they are wonks and they're interested in wonkery, then <laughs> they can go to the OECD website, slash <laughs> migration, and they can see the migration work.
0: I'm looking at some pictures but, of you online. You, you clean up real nice. You look real. You oh, look, doesn't he? Doesn't? Yeah.
2: He <laughs> looks. Super. looks yes. like. Oh, no, not
4: the, the online pictures are terrible because I'm they're really always great. taken after like overnight flights and you're at these conferences <laughs> in, in Shanghai or something and you look like you're a cadaver.
2: No, you look great. You look great. No. It's You've funny gotten... that
0: when you do what you do, the, the photo that people will choose to publish are always ones where you have a very serious look on your face. Farah, you probably have the same thing. And it's like, you, you'd probably prefer mm-hmm. smiling. But then again, if you're talking about something heavy, it goes with the story, I guess. So,
1: but- Or, as John will tell you, and Meredith, who is actually a photographer and can tell us why they choose to do this, mm-hmm. they will always pick a picture of you speaking. So your mouth is open. <laughs> you look ridiculous. You're gesturing in some
2: weird direction. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Meredith, why do they do that? That I don't know because I You're making
3: a funny thing with your mouth, like
2: yeah, no, no, no. I wouldn't, I would not take those pictures. I wouldn't publish those pictures. I would do the moments either before or after. John, basically, basically Meredith needs
1: to take your picture. That's basically where we're going with this.
4: I don't know. I, guess I, mean, I for have a, to... for a wonk, that's an action shot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. You have your answer right there. I mean, the the journalist who thinks they're going to win a Pulitzer is like. Well, the story is about how he spoke at this forum. So we have to have him speaking in the story.
1: It's, well, the amount okay. of time and energy that goes into picking the worst photograph is really remarkable to me. <laughs> yeah. but, mm-hmm. hey, that's, yeah.
4: Let's put it this way. I'm, not, I'm never the star. I'm a background person. That's fine. That's, that's what uh, I'm supposed well, can, to do. Can, so. I,
1: can I ask you a really wonky question before we close? Walk away. Walk away. So what is your what is your biggest concern on the migration issue as we're going forward in a post-COVID context?
4: I think there is a risk that the demographic and economic imbalance leads to a failure of traditional migration control mechanisms that undermines support for multilateralism in the whole. Domain and undermines attempts to, let's say, put in place a fact based policy for managing different kinds of migration. At the end.
2: Thank you. <laughs> wow, that that's great. scary. That was great. Yes, it is scary, actually. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it so I can understand what it is.
3: <laughs> <laughs> me too, Meredith, me you too and though. I can go to wonkery school together. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, wait, what is a wonkery? Wonkery boot
2: camp? Wonkery. I was like, wait, what is what does that word even mean? We'll Google oh, I'm all the actors just trying
4: to impress Farrah here. <laughs> no, because you're because not. I I'm just, I, I I have just have like... to
1: say, I can't tell you how upset I am that I didn't know you were in Paris uh, at the OECD. I have, over the course of the last decade, have been there Obviously, uh, many many times, times. Pops me out. So oh,
4: I didn't know. So see, I don't see. I, I'm not stalking you. That's why you don't. know. No, I mean I'm it's I'm such a gigantic.
1: Like... I mean, just chaos. But you know the the work that's being done there, and obviously Paris is a hub for a lot of a lot of other organizations. Well, now
4: you know. Pat. Now I know. So
1: <laughs> we will do wonkery.
4: Yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you to the wonks and the non-wonks for participating today. <laughs> By the way, you can also follow John on Twitter. Looks like you're fairly active on Twitter, my friend, right?
4: Oh, it's yeah. very boring. It's again, just it's only wonks. Okay, it's wonks, wonks really only. Boring. More Walkery. I guaranteed. On guaranteed no humor. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. No sarcasm. Yeah. Really boring. Where, where well, we you need a YouTube
0: channel. Yeah, for, for that.
2: all your, your great humor. The, yeah.
0: the Twitter handle for the wonks out there is at Jonathan Chaloff. His last name, of course, spelled C H A L. O double F. I hope you had fun, John, a little bit, at least. I did. I okay. did. It was
2: so yes. oh, great to have
3: you. Okay. No, Thank thanks. you for joining.
0: Thanks for listening, thanks, everyone. Make thanks sure to, people. Y- and you're welcome. Pleasure for you to be here. And uh, he was definitely one of our better guests. I think better than average. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Maybe, maybe the best, but, I love. We guests. say that about all the guests. Are you
4: kidding? Yeah.
0: Yes, actually, Dave you... says this
4: about No picking favorites. All right, all
0: right.
1: Are you favorites? playing really bad, cheesy like music in the background? Yeah, Dave? I'm trying. I'm
0: trying to close the show, and then no,
1: I keep you getting can't interrupted.
4: We love I, was all sure of our Dave, I was sure Dave was going to pitch me to something Grateful Daddy. That was what I was positive. Like I'm sure oh. Dave was going to put on some. So I'm glad you didn't.
0: Oh, Okay, yeah, good. I think
2: we're all glad. <laughs> no, it's
0: just kind of canned 80-ish, vaguely '80s, '80s techno music sounding stuff. That's why it's such a good podcast. At any rate, uh, thank you for listening to the show, everybody. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your pods. You go to pod617.com slash link for all the info. There's also a link there to our Patreon page so you can support the fine work of these artists creating this podcast and keep that train rolling. Yes. Yes. Let them know, Meredith. Let them know. Support us. (laughs) Support us. I want thank- to do more. Ching, ching ching right? <laughs> ching, ching,
2: ching. Bring it on.
0: And thank you for listening to The Link. See you next time.